Nobody likes to be told, I told you so. Um, But tonight in our text, we're going to hear that refrain from the prophet Samuel. So if you have a Bible, uh, 1 Samuel chapter 10 is going to be our opening read. Uh, We're going to begin it on in verse number 17 and read through the end of the chapter. Uh, This section that we're calling Dueling Kingdoms uh, is uh, uh, of 1 Samuel spotlights that Israel is at a crossroads, that they're teetering back and forth from where they should be and where they ought not to be. God sent the prophet Samuel to them and he led them right to the threshold, right to the door of revival. And they were, they were, they were, confessing their sins, they were understanding where they went astray, and they were right on the verge of revival, yet they could not shake the feeling that they needed more than just a relationship with God. They could not shake the idea that maybe what we need is not just God, but we need to be like every other nation. We need a king. So after much consternation from Samuel, God told him to address the nation and God told him to tell them uh, that they're going to get what they wanted. And they were happy to hear that. Uh, So we read last week how Saul was chosen among the tribes and among the people of Israel and how the people were uh, were exceedingly excited uh, to hear that Saul of Benjamin uh, was chosen to be their king. And and the reason why they were excited about it is because his accolades were outstanding. Uh, He exceeded every every, uh, metric that that they would expect someone uh, in terms of qualifications for a king. Uh, Saul came from and possessed, according to chapter 9, he came from power, he came from wealth, and he had good looks. So when the people were thinking, what do we need in a king and what would be a great, who would be a great king for us? They thought we need someone who comes from power, who has power. Uh, We need someone who is wealthy and, 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 and comes from a wealthy family. And we need someone that looks good and looks the part and stands out from the crowd. And Saul checked all of those boxes. When they, were, when they were asked, hey, what would make a good king for you? Uh, they thought, hey, we need someone with power, someone with wealth, someone with looks, and that's exactly what they found. And, and you know, we haven't changed. Uh, thousands of years later, uh, we, see, we see these things in would-be politicians, and we see these things in candidates, and we think that's the kind of leader we need. That's the kind of person we need in charge. And maybe it's because we think, you know what, if we have someone who has you know, a lot of worldly power, who comes from money, has a lot of money, someone who looks like they really fit the position, we think that that's going to trickle down to us. And, and ideally, that's how it would work. Uh, but but I, don't, I, don't, I don't know about the good looks part. That usually doesn't trickle down. But we think, hey, if we have someone who's strong and someone who is wealthy and rich, and hey, we're going to become strong and, and wealthy. And, and, and we think that's going to come to us, but, but that's not usually how it pans out. Um, you know, Israel was convinced that this was all they needed to obtain national and individual, because they wanted it not just as a nation, they wanted it for their own homes and and their own families, their own individual lives. Of course, why why wouldn't they? Uh, They wanted prosperity and they wanted peace and they thought if we just get a guy who has the power, who has the looks, who has the money, we will get prosperity and peace that we will, uh, and we'll have it forever. Uh, We we closed on this thought last week. Uh, They were convinced that now that they had a king who checked all of these boxes, they would be set for life. And what they didn't want to admit, but what was really 
clear from this decision and this pursuit and, and really the excitement that they had about Saul potentially being their king. What this did was it exposed how little faith they had in God. And when we talk about little faith, we don't, we don't mean, you know, I have, a, you know, a numerical. We don't mean, hey, when the Bible talks about little faith or big faith, it's not talking about percentages, right? Well, I have 10% faith in you and 20% faith in them and then, you know, 70% faith in God. It's, it's the substance of our faith. It's how strong or how substantial our faith is. When the people uh, looked at Saul and thought, that's who we need in a king because he has power, he has wealth, he has looks, that exposed that their faith in God was very, very, very small. Because obviously, before there ever was a Saul, God met and surpassed all those metrics and all those superlatives, right? Before they ever had Saul, and before he ever came on the radar, God obviously had the power. God had the majesty. God had all the resources and all the wealth in the universe. But they didn't acknowledge that, did they? You know, you, you see what this revealed about them and what our own similar behavior reveals about us. That we, and again, I'm not saying you, I don't know your heart, but I think we as a people, we as a, as a species, we respect, we value, we adore man in this world more than we do God in heaven. See, when we phone over a man and we phone over this world and we, you know, fall over ourselves to, you know, because of something that this world promises us or the excitement we get from people and the things that they promise us, what it does is it reveals that our faith in God is very small because God has been surpassing those metrics all along. Yet we respect and maybe we even fear man's power more than we do God because when we see someone who has the power, has the strength, all of a sudden, we, we, we begin to put so much confidence in them, which suggests that we don't really have a lot of confidence in God. And it suggests that we're more concerned about what man might do to us than we are God. See, when we, when we get so excited about the treasure of this world and how we might obtain that treasure of this world, what that does, it reveals that, that we value this world's treasure more than we value heaven's treasure. When we are jaw gap when we're when we're in awe of worldly beauty when we're in awe of worldly majesty it suggests that divine majesty divine beauty divine splendor doesn't really move the needle for us now we don't want to admit this but our actions and reactions tell the truth and think about this on a broader spectrum when we chase after this world rather than pursue god or more than we pursue god what does that say about our true desires when we trip over ourselves to please people but don't regard how God feels or what he thinks or how our relationship with him is impacted, what does that say about our faith in God? What does that say about our respect for God? What does that say about how much we value God and what he's doing? It says a lot, honestly. Samuel, who has already voiced his disapproval and concerns, is going to give one last series of addresses in our text tonight before he goes off into the sunset. And he really reflects Israel back at them. He's going to hold up a mirror and he says, I want you to see who you are. I want you to see your heart. So as to say, when it all goes awry shortly, he, he's telling them in advance, I told you so. 
that y'all are about to go down the road that I warned you about. I'm going to give you one last warning. You already made your decision. I'm going to give you one last warning, but I've got to go ahead and say it. I told you guys. I told y'all where you were headed. I told you your heart was not in the right place. I told you you were chasing after the wrong dreams. And now that you're about to walk through the door and maybe be to the point of no return in a lot of areas, you're going to learn the hard way. Now i got to just say, I told y'all this was going to happen. And when, when, when things get worse, you'll remember that I warned you. Don't say that I didn't give you a chance to, 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 to avoid this. Now, don't say that I didn't try to prevent your heart from being split and further distanced from God. Now, while the people want to act as if they can have it both ways, Samuel wants them to know and Samuel wants us to know that you actually can't. We, we want to think that, well, there's nothing wrong with me, you know, wanting, uh, wanting a King Saul in my life. There's nothing wrong with me wanting these worldly systems and these worldly sources and these worldly feelings. There's nothing wrong with me wanting to have this. And, and, and that doesn't say that, I, that doesn't, you know, have to, to mean that my faith in God is small. And that's how we push back. Um, and, and, and that's how we, we deflect uh, what are, is going on in our hearts. But our flesh will push back and say, you know what, we can have it both ways. Uh, that just because I'm, I'm really concerned about, you know, my flesh and materialism and, and, and I'm, I'm very interested in worldly power and worldly wealth and worldly looks doesn't mean that I don't care about God and the things that matter more. Our flesh wants us to think that we can have it both ways. But Samuel is going to say to us, uh, and I think that he's got the Spirit of God so we can trust him. Samuel's going to say to us that we cannot trust ourselves and we should not underestimate just how easily deceived we are by this world. A few verses I want to bring to your attention before we read through this passage. Number one is Jeremiah 17 verse 9 and 10 where the prophet says to the people, uh, the heart is deceitful above all things. It's desperately sick. Who can understand it? I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. So Jeremiah wants us to know, God wants us to know, Samuel wants us to know that you cannot trust your heart. Your heart is deceitful. Your heart will lead you in the wrong direction in a heartbeat. Pun intended. That our hearts are easily, easily distracted. They're very deceived in advance of us making decisions because our flesh, sin, has infected and, and, and deceived us in so many ways. So we cannot trust our heart. That just because it feels right to us and just because it makes sense to us does not mean that we can go by that. It actually should tell us the opposite. So our heart is deceitful. Listen, your heart will rationalize any sin in a heartbeat. Our heart will rationalize anything that is against God's will in a second. Because our hearts are predisposed to that. But thankfully, God's word is here to help us. And Hebrews 4.12 tells us this. The word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, joints and marrow, discerning the fault and intents of the heart. So the, the, the word of God, it gets right to the, to the heart of, of us. It gets to the place where decisions are made. It gets to the place where we choose which path we're going to follow and the word of God is the only lifeline it's the only source of help to get us in the, going in the right direction 
So we need to have this sobriety on, uh, uh, over us that comes from God's word. Um, and, and with these two passages in mind, Jeremiah and Hebrews, I want you to listen to Samuel as he addresses Saul's coronation. Um, maybe not the most uh, uplifting message here at the coronation. You could imagine if this was going on at a presidential inauguration, people might would get a little bit bummed out. Maybe it should be given, though, uh, next time, or maybe we should at least read it ourselves. Chapter 10, verse 17, Samuel calls the people together uh, to the Lord at Mizpah and said to the children of Israel, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, I brought you, I brought up Israel out of Egypt and delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all the kingdoms and from those who opposed you, oppressed you. But you have today rejected your God, who himself saved you from your adversaries and your tribulations. And you have said to him, no, set a king over us. Now, therefore, present yourselves before the Lord by your tribes and by your clans. I want to stop there and talk for just a minute. We see Samuel is going to remind the people of Israel of where they came from and who was there for them long before they ever met or heard of Saul or any other king. He calls on them to own this. Hey, don't be ashamed of the decision that you've made. You have rejected God who did all this for you, who established you. You have rejected him. So step up, present yourself and don't be ashamed of the decision you've made. Now, he's being kind of bold and brash, but hey, he wants them to go ahead and own it. Let's read on. When Samuel called, caused all the tribes of Israel to come near, and the tribe of Benjamin was chosen, when he caused the tribe of Benjamin to come near by their families, the family of Matri was chosen, and Saul, the son of Kish, was chosen. When they sought him, he could not be found. Therefore, they inquired of the Lord further, Has the man come here yet? And the Lord answered, There he is, hidden among the equipment. So they ran and brought him from there, and when he stood among the people, he was taller than any of the people from his shoulders upward. And Samuel said to all the people, Do you see whom the Lord has chosen? That there is no one like him among the people. So all the people shouted and said, Long live the king. When they laid their eyes on Saul, they had no remorse, no regret. This was our guy. Look how tall he is. Look how powerful he is. Look how great he is. He is our guy. And as Samuel exposed them as he called them out and said you have rejected God they said yes we have they didn't hide it they weren't ashamed of it you know I got to talk about this and, and I think for us on a Wednesday night I think all of us will agree with this and I think it's easy to, to point fingers at the world and say, yeah, Justin, you need to tell them that. You know, hey, we're here tonight, so we need to let God speak to our hearts. But I do think this is really an indictment on our generation. And I think this does a great job at, at helping us see how our world, the, the shape our world is in. Specifically, the shape the church is in and the shape many professing Christians are in. Because these people... They claim to be believers. They profess faith in God, yet they just completely rejected him and had no shame about it. And Samuel reminds them, hey, you remember what God has done for you? The reason why there isn't Israel? The reason why you ever got out of slavery, out of bondage? is because of God. You wouldn't even be here if it wasn't for him. And they were glad for that. And they were very 
thankful for that. And they were hoping that God would never let them get back into that shape. But they didn't really want God messing in their affairs anymore. Hey, God served his purpose. He got them out of Egypt. He established them. Hey, hopefully he'll keep us out of further trouble. But God, we don't really want you ruling over our lives anymore. We need a king who can help us in what we are wanting. We don't really need you anymore. And doesn't that remind us a lot of how a lot of believers you know, relate to God or, or, or address God in their lives. You know, we want God to do the impossible for us, but we don't want him involved in the practical day-to-day areas of our lives. We want God to do a miracle for us. We want God to heal and, and deliver and raise up, and we want God to save, but we don't really want him messing around in our affairs and telling us to do this and do that and don't do that. Hey, you should do this with your time, this with your money, this with your life. We want God to do the impossible. We want to leave the impossible to him, but we don't really want him to get involved in anything else. And maybe that's not our verbal profession, but that's how our behavior, what our behavior suggests. We want God to save us from hell, and we want God to take us to heaven when we die, but we won't surrender our life on earth to him. And that makes no sense, doesn't it? This is the attitude of the nominal Christian who wants to go through the motions and pray the prayer and get their insurance, but won't, but won't surrender their life to God. I, I, don't want, I don't know how anybody's ever got to this place because it's terrible theology. What it is is idolatry, and it's creating a version of God that just is not real. Uh, we want God to be an alarm system for our homes. We want God to be... A police force to protect us. We want God to be a source of money and a source of cash so we can get what we want. We want God to be a, a genie in a lamp that grants our wishes, right? We want God to give us security and to give us a, a bank of money and we want God to be this genie that keeps us happy. But, but, but Samuel wants us to know first and foremost that God is not any of those things. God is our creator He is our king and he is our Lord. He will not be reduced down to a tool. He will not be reduced down to an app on your phone. He will not be reduced down to a device that you manipulate and control. We cannot have our cake and eat it too. Samuel advises us to say the quiet part out loud and just own it. If we don't want a relationship with God, if we just want a good insurance policy, we need to say it. And there's a lot of churches selling this to people. And people buy it in a minute. Uh, There's a world out there that loves to evoke God's name and loves to talk about God, but they don't want to honor him and serve him and glorify him. They don't want to live for him. When we open the Bible, we hear it loud and clear that God deserves first place and he demands first place and he will have no other place. Isaiah 42 tells us, I am the Lord, that is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor praise to carved idols, as in God says, I will not share my glory with anyone or anything else. I'm first or I'm not anywhere in your life. Now, I know that's harsh, right? That seems a little bit, ugh. Justin, are you, are you, you know, is this really, is this really the gospel? Now, listen, don't take it from me. And, and don't even take it from Samuel. Let's take it from Jesus, He seems to be a pretty good source of information about God, doesn't Doesn't he? So put a bookmark here, and let's flip over to John chapter 6 for just a few minutes, because I I, I think that Jesus says this better than anybody. And I want to remind you that Jesus loves you. 
He is the reflection of God's love for you. Jesus came to show the world how much God loves the world. And what did Jesus do for the world? He died for the world. So there's no, there's no way you read anything that Jesus says and thinks, man, this guy doesn't love me. He proved his love for you. But that same Jesus also made it very clear that God is not a genie. God is not your protection in and only. God is, not, uh, God is not a source of money for you. God is a king. Don't get it mixed up. So Jesus is dealing with the, the crowds of people. Thousands of people are flocking to Jesus. He's been doing miracles. He's fed 5,000 people. You know that story. He feeds 5,000 men plus their wives and their children. So maybe 12, 13,000 people he feeds on this one afternoon. And in this, on this occasion, Jesus preaches a sermon that turns, that, that thins the crowd from thousands to a dozen. John 6 Verse 26, we're jumping in. And the people have crossed the sea to try to find Jesus after he fed the thousands. The next day, he's went across the, not a big ocean, but he went across the pond, went across the lake. And they found their way to him, and Jesus calls them out in verse 26. He says, most assuredly, I say to you, you seek me not because you saw the signs or you were convinced that I'm God and I should be glorified. You are coming because you ate the food you ate the loaves and were filled you're here because I filled your bellies yesterday and you want more well yeah Jesus what do you think you gave us some food we want some more food he says but here's why I did that here's why I did the miracle not to, not to make you think that's all the only purpose I serve I'm not a slot machine I'm not a vending machine verse 27 do not labor for the food which perishes but for the food which endures to everlasting life he says I gave you a temporary meal to show you you have a hunger that cannot be quenched by this world so I'm not here just to keep filling your bellies every day or filling your bank accounts every day or every month. I'm not here to give you something that's going to be here today and gone tomorrow. I'm here to show you have a hunger that's greater than this world can fill and I want you to pursue that. Does that make sense? He, he met them in their hunger to show them a greater hunger. So they go back and forth. And they're thinking, no, Jesus, we just want you to feed us and we need you to take care of us. And, 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 and Jesus says, hey, y'all, I am the bread of life that is greater than the bread of this world that you chase after. Power, looks, money, actual food. I am the bread of life. Come down from heaven to give you something that your soul needs. Now, you should read this whole story. It's very powerful. We'll, pre we'll, we'll teach on it in depth one day but I want to jump down to verse 50 because this is kind of the, the, the end of the sermon where Jesus kind of gets right to the point he talks in circles for a little bit they're confused and, and he can't get them to, to understand what he's talking about so finally he just he says it plainly to them in verse 50 this is the bread that comes down from heaven that one may eat of eat of it and not die he's referring to himself and what he offers I'm going to give you a, a substance that is greater than this world and that gives you a, a sense of belonging a sense of fulfillment a sense of, uh, of, of worth and purpose I'm the living bread which came down from heaven if anyone eats of this bread he will live forever and the bread I shall give is my flesh which I shall give for the life of the world and the Jews, you know, 
and to their defense, they, they did, this was new to them. So they think he's talking literal, and they, they, they kind of respond with a, with a smart aleck, kind of flippant answer in verse 52. How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So literally, you know, Jesus is talking about spiritual food. He's talking about spiritual purpose and, 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 and substance to get us through this life that's going to be bigger than this world. And, and, and they kind of respond, well, you know, Jesus, you're the bread of life, and what, what are we going to do to eat you? And obviously, he's not, that's not what he's talking about. But, but Jesus says, okay, you want to talk about, you want, you want me to talk, talk about this literally? Verse 53, he says, most assuredly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. And they're thinking, oh, he's being serious. And Jesus, he's talking, this is all symbolic. And of course, the Lord's Supper is symbolic of this. Jesus says, you should consume me. That if you want life, you're going to have to follow after me and consume me and what I stand for and what I've taught you and what I offer you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up in the last day. My flesh is food indeed. My blood is drink indeed. And what's he talking about? He's going to lay his life down. He's going to pour his blood out. He's going to give his life up so that you and I might take it up and take after him and be filled with a new and better way. So he's saying symbolically, you've got to consume me. I'm going to lay my life down for you. And all that I've taught you and all that I've showed you, you've got to adopt it and you've got to follow after it and you've got to put it first and then you will find what you are looking for. For my flesh is food indeed, my drink, my blood is drink indeed. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him as the living Father sent me and I live because of the Father. He who feeds on me will live because of me. And I think we understand that, that, that language. Feeds on me, relies on me, depends on me. As in the word of God, the spirit of God, we are dependent on what God is providing. That is the person who lives. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not that your fathers ate and are dead. He who eats this bread will live forever. So he's talking about eternal life. He's talking about spiritual life. Now, just to give you kind of uh, an idea how this worked out, because people know what he's talking about. People understand at this point, he's, he's talking about giving up everything and putting everything on on our list down and putting him first he's talking about chasing after his will for our lives rather than our own and verse 66 says from that time many of his disciples went back and walked with him no more you see this is the divide in Jesus' ministry he had a lot of followers or he had a lot of consumers Consumers were people who were there because they wanted to consume and wanted to listen and they wanted what he could give them. They were there because they wanted him to make them rich and make them healthy, make them, you know, full. But this is where he drew the line in the sand. You're either a consumer or you are an actual follower. You're a fan or you are a disciple. Jesus knows that the people in his inner circle, even Peter, James, John, even they thought this was a little bit much to ask. And they wanted to leave. They were on the edge of their seat as the back half of the room had left. And Jesus looks at them in verse 67 and says, Do you also want to go away? Because you know why he asked them this question? Because he knew they wanted to go away. And now he puts them on the spot. 
You know, Peter and John, they're darting their eyes at each other thinking, who's going to leave first? This guy's nuts. This guy's asking us to give up everything for him. This guy's asking us to put him first. This guy's asking us to, 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 to literally consume him and, and, and put him at the center of our lives. And they're all looking around thinking, we can't do that. We, we want him to make us rich and healthy and wealthy. We don't, we're, not here for the, we're not here to give our lives up. They look around and, and then they, Peter, Peter makes this confession. Peter, who didn't know if he really wanted to give his life up and didn't know if he really wanted to forgo his dreams, but Peter knew this. Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and know that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. So Peter says this, Jesus, I don't know if I'm really on board with all this. I don't know if I'm really ready to give up my dreams and give up my hopes. I don't really know if I agree with you that what I need is spiritual and that what I need is what you say, not what I say. I don't know if I agree with all that. But I know this, if I walk away from you, I'm walking away from the source of life. And if I walk away from you, I am giving up everything that matters most to me. So I don't know if I'm ready to give up everything. I don't know if I'm ready to believe all that you're saying, but I know this, if I turn away from you, I'm going to lose what I need the most. So I'm sticking with you. And if that means I've got to turn away from this world, then hey, I, that's what it's going to have to mean, but you're going to help me get there. <laughs> And that's really what it comes down to. Uh, Jesus is offering us a higher grade of life, a better way that goes beyond the temporal nature of this world. If we choose to follow him, our eyes will be open, our hearts will be convicted and called to truth. And we've talked about another sermon that Jesus preached along these same lines so many times. A similar situation where the crowds are big, his disciples actually try to quiet him and keep him from running people off, but he doesn't hold back. He said... If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Next slide. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? So Jesus makes you think. What does it profit you if you get the power and the wealth and you get the, you get the appearance of all the things that you're looking for and, you, and, you, and all those boxes are checked? What does it profit you if you gain all those things but you lose the only thing that's going to go with you into eternity? We have all these statements from God and his prophets from Jesus all across the Bible, but it's like we still don't believe them sometimes. Our flesh convinces us to brush this off and keep chasing this world. And, and Samuel wasn't willing to let the people get away with that decision, at least not without making it clear to them what they were actually doing. They were choosing this world over God. As we read in this passage, they actually do this defiantly. And that's what's scary about simple nature sometimes. We'll reject God and claim we aren't. We'll turn away from God and still pretend like we're serving him and still pretend like we believe in him. But then we're just outright defiant and bold in our decisions that clearly don't prioritize him. When they laid their eyes on Saul, they said, long live the king. Their hearts were fully in sync and in lust with this world. First John tells us this. For, do not love the world. Or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that's in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride of life, it's not from the Father, but it's from the world. The world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. Notice the contrast between what our heart and our flesh wants and what God wants. And if you want to know the condition of your heart, 
If you want to know, you know, if you, we read this and we're thinking, I don't, you know, am, am I driven by the lust of my flesh? Am I driven by the lust of my eyes? Am I driven by the pride of life? Or am I, you know, am, am, I, am I living in the wrong way? If you want to know the condition of your heart, just look at what your goals are. Look at what dreams you have. Look at what you're chasing after. Look at what you're prioritizing. Look at what you're craving. Look at the things that you make excuses about. Look at the decisions that you make that clear, that, that, and, and the things that you do with your life, your time, and your money. Look at the decisions you make. Look at the things you choose to do and the things you spend your money on and the things that you give your life to. Look at all that and, and that will expose the truth. Look at your goals. Look at your plans. Look at your life. And that's going to reflect whether you are pursuing God or pursuing this world. That's just the easy way to do it. If our understanding of God is this cosmic being who, who exists to prop up our worldly dreams, then we need to come to the terms with the fact that we're not worshiping the God of the Bible. That if, it, it, that if, you're, if, you, if you rationalize the decisions you make... And you say, well, yeah, I believe in God, but I also do all these things that God isn't for, and I make these decisions that God isn't pleased with, and I'm chasing after all these dreams that God isn't anywhere near. If you rationalize that, then the reality of it is you're just not, you're not worshiping God. You're worshiping an idea of God that you wish were true. But, but the truth of it is if we're worshiping God, if we're following Jesus, he will occupy the throne of our hearts. His kingdom will be our greatest priority. That's just the, the, the brass tacks of it all. I think this text and this message comes at an opportune time where we still can get this year on the right track as it's still very new. Samuel is going to go on to address the nation one more time before, they would, before he would turn the stage and the reins over to Saul completely. Now, if you read the entirety of chapter 12, which we'll, we'll turn over to if you want to go back to 1 Samuel and we'll, we'll wrap up. If you read all of chapter 12, you can tell that Samuel's a bit sore. He's a bit salty. He's a bit hurt. And we understand that. God said, hey, don't take it personal, but he did. He took it personal. But if you read all of the sermon that Samuel preaches, he doesn't just kind of tell them that he's hurt. He goes over their history. Uh, from, uh, you can highlight this and you can read it on your own, but from verse 6 to verse 18... Um, Samuel goes down, th goes throughout the, the history of Israel and he shows them what God has done and he makes it very clear to them that God is the reason they exist. God is the one who called Jacob and changed his name. God is the one that brought Aaron and Moses to, to pl a place of power. God is the one that led them through the wilderness. If you jump in at verse number 12, this is him recounting some of the, the, wilderness, uh, ex the wilderness experience. He says, When you saw that Nahash, the king of the, Amorites, the Ammonites, came against you, you said to me, No, but a king shall reign over us when the Lord God was your king. So when they said, Hey, we want a king, give us Saul. Samuel initially told them, No, you don't need a king because God is your king. But verse 13, it says, Now therefore, here is, here is the king whom you have chosen and whom you have desired. And take note, the Lord has set a king over you. He's given you what you want. But what you've done is you've replaced him. You've replaced him. Samuel lets him know that all this was all about God's glory. It was all for his glory, but they flipped the script. They flipped the script and they made it about themselves. They put themselves at the center of the story. Listen, when God's at the center, you're well taken care of. 
When God is the center, when God's in control, when God rules your life, you have nothing to worry about, you have need of nothing. But when you flip that script, all of a sudden you bring a weight on your shoulders and you put a weight on man's shoulders that none of us can carry. To put it clearly, a king cannot give you peace. A president cannot give you peace. The same way as a person cannot make you happy. A husband, a wife that does everything they should do, they cannot make you happy. Something of this world will not complete you across the whole spectrum of materialism. It will not complete you. The more you dig and the more you try to find it in this world, the more disappointed you'll be, the more jaded you become. And here's the thing. The devil loves to disappoint people with this world so that he can give you a depressed, defeated mind. The devil loves for you to chase after this world and try to find yourself in this world because he knows you're not going to find it. And he hopes that you become so defeated and so depressed that he, gets you to conv- he convinces you that God let you down. Even though you weren't pursuing God, he'll convince you God let you down. God didn't give you what you wanted when reality, in the reality you left God out of the picture a long time ago. But Satan loves to get people in this position. Samuel hammers this and they even realize, hey, we've, we've messed up. Verse 19. The people said to Samuel, pray for your servants to the Lord your God that we may not die for we have added to our sins the evil of asking a king for ourselves. They admit, hey, we've messed up. Listen to Samuel, do not fear, you have done all this wickedness, yet do not turn aside from following the Lord, serve him with all your heart. He basically says, hey guys, y'all have got a king, you're going to be stuck with a king for a while, but now you've got to make the decision, do we want this guy, or do we really need God, because hey, we really need God. Look at verse 21, do not turn aside, for then you would go after empty things which cannot profit or deliver, for they are nothing. That's a verse that this generation needs to see on billboards. Do not turn away from God, for then you will go after empty things, vain things, material things that will not profit you, they will not deliver you, for they are nothing. Isn't that true about all of us? And this isn't just about the alcoholic. This isn't just about the drug addict, although that applies to them. This isn't just about the person who's addicted to something of this world. This is about all of us. This is about all of us who who watch the news at night and think, man, if this doesn't happen, we're done for. This is about all of us that looks in our situation, looks at our homes and thinks, if we don't get this, if she doesn't do that, if I don't get that, then it's going to be over for us. This is about all of us who turn aside from God and put our hope in vanity and materialism, things that cannot profit and cannot deliver. And for a lot of people, they are so far down this road, they don't even see it. They can't even see it in the mirror. There's a lot of professing Christians that they have already turned away from God. They have went after empty things. Verse 21 is so powerful. We need to pray that God would help us all because we've went down this path. Samuel promises he'll pray for them. He says in verse 22, the Lord will not forsake his people for his great name's sake because it has pleased the Lord to make you his people. So Samuel promises them in verse 23, Lord, over far, as, as for me, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord in ceasing to pray for you. I will teach you the good and right way. So he, he says, hey y'all, God's not going to forsake you and I'm not going to quit praying for you. 
but you must fear him and you must serve him in truth with your whole heart. For consider what great things he has done for you. But if you do wickedly, you shall be swept away, both you and your king. Doesn't this sermon apply to our generation just as much or more than it did theirs? So church, we need to be like Samuel. We need to keep praying for our world, our our churches, our family. Pray for ourselves, honestly, because we've went down these same roads. God will not forsake us. God is patient and long-suffering. But but where we're left at tonight is if we've, if we've moved away from God, we've got to reinstall God as the king of our heart. Even if you're someone who's been serving the Lord for years, it's a good time to rededicate, recenter your life around God as your king. We must renounce any worldly agenda, any other kings we bow to. Our goal in this world has to be holding fast to God's throne and trusting that he will provide. And here's the thing that we'll, we'll stop at. God is not just your king. He is a good father. And you can rely on a good father to take care of you. But here's the reality. We'll never truly appreciate the kind and gracious side of God our father if we refuse to acknowledge and honor God as our king. God is your father and he loves you and he will take care of you. He will bless you and you will never go without what you need but you'll never appreciate what your good father is doing if you don't see him as your one and only king. Does that make sense? He has always been king. He always will be king. The question is, is he our king? Samuel begs us to turn back if we've turned away even an inch so that this So this word to us doesn't have to be like it was to Israel. He doesn't have to say to us, I told you so. We can know better, and we can make it right if we've went to the left or to the right. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for giving us this word of clarity and this word of conviction. Father, we all, we all have turned aside to our own way. We have all put other kings on your throne. We have put things in place of you. And God, as Samuel says, we've chased after empty things, chased after worthless things, chased after material things. And we've put all of our hopes and dreams in power and wealth and looks and appearance. And for what? To just come up empty? To just come up short? Father, I pray that we wouldn't just use this to to, to point fingers at the world because obviously it applies there. But we would use this to try our own hearts. And if we aren't pursuing you and following you and devoting our lives to you, Help us to to put you back at the center, back on the throne, that we might be more satisfied with you and that we might see you as our one and only desire and be saved from this world that only wants to disappoint and only wants to deceive us. Father, thank you for being our king. Whether we acknowledge you or not, you love us and you want the best for us and you will give us our best if we just put our faith in you. We trust you and ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.